Welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. And this week, we are joined by Abena, who is an award-winning occupational health physician and entrepreneur. She is founder of Medic Footprints, the global diverse careers platform for doctors. And she is on a mission to connect 1 million doctors with the best ambitious companies in health tech pharma and consulting by 2030. That is no tall order. And not least because she is also a mum of two children under two. And for me personally, massive inspo and gorgeous, gorgeous little ones that I always love see popping up, whether we it's on a call or if we're at an event and you've got them in tow. Huge inspo for me, um, but apparently also not such a great rock climber. Um, but I'm sure James will agree that you're in good company there. So no judgment whatsoever. Welcome, Abena. Uh, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here in the same room virtually with you, both of you again. So yeah, thank you. You are most welcome. So we've got Quite a few stories this week in Pigeon talking about a couple of trends. So I think let's dive straight in. So first trends that are up for discussion today are reported by Sky News. And Daniel Bin says that the NHS digital health checkups are being launched to ease pressures on GPs. I've seen a fair bit of debate around this actually uh, on LinkedIn in particular talking about is this enough is this actually perpetuating the digital divide but also acknowledging that it is a good place to start and we have to start somewhere so Abena what do you reckon is this going to be beneficial and who is it going to help Really good question. Um, And like all of these things, I can only speak, well, I can speak from a whole range of different experiences, actually. Um, Is it going to make all the difference? Yes, I think it will. I think it is. I mean, you know, it's not like this is anything that's too new. Um, There is electronic technology out there already that helps uh, GPs or even specialist doctors to monitor care at home or monitor trends at home. the divide, the digital divide, yeah. So I guess, you know, our population is getting older. And so as we get older, there are going to be more of the older population using tech, we would hope, depending on how how it's designed. Uh, is it going to be a problem? I think we should go and see. We should, I mean, it's, it's a matter of watch and wait, basically. I, mm-hmm. I think, it, yes, it will ease the pressure from GPs, absolutely. Um, I think the question is, acting on abnormal results like how quickly Mm. can primary care address that um and that that obviously is a big risk especially with people you know connection getting data quickly as well that's another thing um so yeah lots of questions and I think it's a matter of just wait and see depends on the systems it's always about the systems always and that's the biggest question that I've seen posed is that kind of what what happens after that checkup and uh, you know it's something we discuss all the time is you know with any kind of test kit or or check it's almost the information that comes after um and and how that spurs people into action that is the most important part of it um but the other thing that i was thinking is that from what i understand and what i've read that these these checks 
these ones specifically are not recommended for people who already have um, an underlying condition or obviously comorbidities and that kind of thing. And you, you said there about, you know, an aging population and obviously an aging population is, is more sick and more likely to have at least one underlying condition, if not more. And so where we talk about, I guess, the digital divide and that kind of thing, I wonder if perhaps there's actually benefit for the people who have not yet hit older age and have not yet got any identified conditions that actually it's picking some of those up earlier and yes there is for sure a conversation to be had about that that digital divide but inherently it sounds like actually it's not going to be for some of those older people who are more unwell anyway um and so it could serve a real purpose where you know from a society perspective men for example are less likely to go to a doctor but would they be more likely to go and whether it's popping into a boots or a local pharmacy or something to go and have that digital health checkup instead, um, you know, perhaps that's less intimidating and almost like a easier route into healthcare or identifying some of these conditions at an earlier stage. It's a really interesting point, actually, because now from actually just listening to you, the question is how do we how do we access people? And you know, this addresses people at home. But obviously there is a substantially large population of people at work as well. And that, as you know, is an area that also is targeted and should be targeted. But the responsibility usually lies on the employer. And so from an occupational health perspective, um, we assist employers who are doing health assessments or health screening or health checkup. Uh, It's not generally digitally done but it is delivered where we can access people. So I guess, you know, you're talking about, you know, the common things like blood pressure, cholesterol. I mean, a lot of those things are done at home anyway. Um, So this is a matter of just saving time for a lot of people. But yeah, there is the question as to whether it it will be fit for purpose. And going back to what I said initially, I think it's a matter of wait and see. But I do wonder whether they could, that the government could support employers or encourage employers or help fund those assessments through the work channels rather than just relying on individuals themselves because employers also have a response say responsibility but it's you know under health and safety work legislation they also have a legal responsibility to support people's health at work so I wonder whether they should be also looking down those channels I think that's an opportunity there that that isn't necessarily exploited enough And yes, it doesn't necessarily capture the non-working population, which is the ageing population. But yeah. Yeah, I think that really echoes something we've heard um, Marigula from Pepe saying when we were talking about women's health, where, you know, you have NHS budgets that are finite, that are stretched. We we hear about that. We know that. um, And we hear, hear it all the time. And so actually, there is a responsibility for the employers to step in and a role that they can and should be playing in something like these you know health checkups whether digital or not um and actually you know it's in their commercial interest because a healthier workforce is a more productive workforce um but i you know i find that interesting as well that actually you know it's obviously great to see that this is an an nhs initiative but the great to see how this perhaps evolves in partnership with employers and perhaps other 
commercial organisations who can step in on these kinds of initiatives um, and perhaps pick up the slack because we know that the NHS resources are finite, but there are other people who have the resources to be able to do that or other organisations that have the resources to be able to do that. And that in turn, um, you know, has a a much wider benefit because if you've, as you say that, you know, yes, it doesn't pick up, um, you know, the the non-working population, but if employers are picking up the working population, that frees up capacity for the NHS digital health checks to then support perhaps the non-working population um and you know whether it's older people or not we also know that people who are unemployed or are from more economically deprived backgrounds are also more likely to become unwell and will take longer to access the care that they need so if those resources are prioritized for those groups perhaps or can be prioritized that group those groups perhaps that also goes some way to redressing the inequity that we see yeah no absolutely I think you've made some really really spot-on points there absolutely <laughs> yeah and I was also thinking about disability as well I was thinking yeah. about disability um and supporting those but I mean I guess these health checks are specifically for those who have chronic health conditions mm. and who are otherwise stable and well uh, we're talking about this this article specifically references blood pressure and cholesterol mm. um but again it's just like adding the tech to what already happens mm. like i have family members that have to check their blood pressure and then manually write it down so mm. the change is instead of manually writing it down they put it in an app and mm. you would hope that someone is going to look at those results <laughs> and there's there's a big hope there there's a big hope and i think that, that again it's it's just you know, at what point I use an example of a family member of mine who had a blood test for an HbA1c, which is to, to monitor whether they because they, they weren't diabetic at the time. Uh, this is to monitor the chances of and their general glucose glucose control. And that came back as high. But that was not information was not available to them for at least another six to nine months. <laughs> after they were actually initially diagnosed yeah and so you know but interestingly enough in that time that person had gone on a health drive (laughs) and so when that information became available it was like well actually I've lost a lot of weight etc etc can you check it again and actually it had gone back to a normal level so they actually escaped having to start uh you know insulin metformin all, all of those drugs um because they've managed it themselves but the the point of the story is a lot of people are falling through the gap when it comes to acting on results referral i mean one of our other articles talks about the referral gap as well and trying to address again the connection between primary care and secondary care um so it really is as we said earlier it's about the system like how how quickly are clinicians able to pick up these results and act on them? Because like, you know, they're struggling already. <laughs> and so actually this is going to pick up, if it's used properly, it's going to pick up a lot more abnormal results. But then, you know, the wor- workforce hasn't substantially changed. So how is that going to work? Mm. How is exactly is it going to ease pressure for GPs? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, the, the article that you reference is from... Um, HTN and it says that a new report highlights the role of digital and managing the interface between GPs and hospitals 
and quotes the authors as saying that a fifth of patients referred by a GP or consultant-led care end up in a referral black hole with more than 2 million patients each year having to make four or more visits to their GP before referral is accepted. Is that is that gap? I mean, we know the workforce reports come out today. Uh, we know that there's a workforce problem. But do you think that that, that gap is exclusively down to a workforce challenge or do you think that there are other factors at play there well i mean referral pathways is one thing uh administration is another and yes workforce so you know supply and demand <laughs> supply mm. and demand basically um you know even just being able to get to your gp i'm i'm amazed that those two million patients were able to actually get a gp appointment in the first yeah. place how long did they spend on a phone line at 8am to get those four appointments i know i have to say like you know my gp surgery like if i need a gp appointment which i had to do the other week call up like literally on the phone at like seven you've got your finger on the dial right you get through you're like oh thank god and then you're like, they'll call you at some time in the day. It's like not like you have anything better to do. Um, and then they'll call you at a time that's like you're in a podcast, for example. That's when they'll call you. Um, and then it's like, oh, hi, I'm the paramedic. And it's like, hold on a second. Uh, I didn't, re- you know, why they have, I understand why they have paramedics at, uh, at, at primary care practices, just to, again, easing the, the workload. But again, it's a workforce problem. These are huge, significant symptoms of a workforce problem. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a number of things. And then going back to systems. James loves to talk about systems. And actually, the new frontier in health tech is really an infrastructure and systems approach that needs to be taken. I do. And it, yes, this is, tr- this is true. Um, there's two frontiers, the technology frontier, which keeps accelerating forwards, but there's an adoption frontier, which is much further behind, which is, are these places ready to adopt that technology for a million different reasons? Digital literacy, uh, just the ability to critically appraise technologies to bring the right one in, uh, training, uh, like education, all of these things that actually make the place viable for that technology. So I'm calling that sort of the adoption frontier. And yes, it's so important for these systems to consider both rather than, or for just us all to consider both of those things as places to solve problems rather than just push, pushing the tech forwards because we can talk about large language models all day. We can talk about quantum computing all day. If you've seen the new Black Mirror and you know what the quantum computer is doing, particularly in uh, content creation, etc. So like very much our world. And we can talk about all that stuff all day, but ultimately like the, the problems to be solved are like what I talked about on the health tech podcast the other day. Like, Garlib came on from written medicine you know a Romanian child died because they were they received their referral letter for an MRI in in English understood the date and the time but turned up not being nil by mouth got turned away same thing happened again by the time they got the MRI and the results um their condition was untreatable and the child died you know that's a deep infrastructure change that requires interoperability across lots of systems to talk to each other, to know the nationality of the individual, to send the communications out in the right uh, in the right language to prevent what is, and saying this crudely now, but a very expensive pathway that the NHS then had to do of those MRI appointments, the eventual MRI scan, the end of life care, but obviously just 
on a very human level, just the devastating impact that has on a family. And like, I am quite angry about this because I've been like immersed in this story for a couple of weeks after speaking to Galeb and speaking about this with a few people. But there are these infrastructure changes that are required in healthcare that I don't feel are getting the right attention because how written medicine and what Galeb's doing is not just across everything everywhere right now as a priority. You know, multiculturally, this nation receives a lot of benefit from the amount of different nations that are part of it, the amount of different languages that are part of it. And so we receive all that benefit and yet we can't communicate to people in the right way, in the right language. And God forbid people can't read or write that written written medicine has pictograms of how to take your medicine and when to take your medicine to increase adherence, how to get to your appointment and turn up at the right place. Like people that can't necessarily read and write and as well as in all the different languages. So it's like, for me, like, yes, okay, we can talk about tech and get very excited about large language models and AI and all the rest of it. But like, end of the day there's some very human people with very human problems that 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 deserve better and we can address the adoption frontier and by the way that's patients that's also staff staff are also facing like as we talked about workforce all these problems that, that can be solved but we're not addressing this adoption frontier of like are we making these places digitally ready are we are we combating digital literacy to make sure that we've got the right education about technology amongst staff that they can bring in the the right technologies and make sure that they land and make sure that they're useful and can i, can I ask you a question James? go, go for it babe. go for it babe. <laughs> and there's on my podcast <laughs> go for it no i think i think it's really interesting about what i hear you say uh, and my question to you is, do you think that there are certain stakeholders that you've mentioned, do you think their voice is just not amplified enough? So you talked about patients, we've talked about workforce, but then everyone's talking about tech because tech is sexy mm. and we want to push it onto the healthcare system. It's going to save lives, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But do you think it's because the voice of the stakeholders that matter just isn't influential enough that isn't out there enough to then actually be more aware of, of those issues and how that can actually impact lives i think maybe uh, i don't i don't know the answer to that because i think it's just so multifaceted because if you think about it for me this will always come down at least in part to a financial argument of are the business models there to actually support this. And so you look at what Garlip's doing at Written Medicine, right? They've got a platform that will allow an NHS site, a trust, a community pharmacy to appreciate the language required of the communications, the prescription, and ensure that it is in that language and communicated in the right way to that person, the letters that go out, as I say, the prescriptions, etc. But as Garlip says, on, on the podcast like first of all it's just a separate it's a separate platform so that's problem number one it's it's a separate platform so the amount of drop-off that you get of like oh, i'm just not going to open another window oh right even if it's going to make sure that you get way better adherence amongst a group of patients that are you know facing great health inequalities anyway and this is going to make yeah it's just another platform so i'm just not going to do it and that and that's not that's not me slighting on those individuals. That's probably them just being incredibly honest about like, we've got enough to do. I can't be responsible for opening another platform because of my workflow and it's just not going to happen. And so what, what do you need then? Well, you need greater interoperability. So where does this eventually go? This, if you follow it back, starts getting towards policy and it starts getting towards policy changes of, are there the right financial incentives for organizations to ensure 
that they have got interoperable platforms that can API into things like written medicine. And so ultimately, the ground needs to be set, the rules need to be set in order to sort of, I guess, produce this more fertile ground for innovation. Giving a great example, right? Just did a webinar with Clinic. They're an AI triage platform for primary care. The from a policy perspective, the new GP contract means that there needs to be, and apologies for butchering this if it's not strictly exactly true like this, but it's along the lines of GP practices now need to have a function for assessing and triaging patients as they ring the practice. So the 8am rush no longer exists. Anytime that patients ring a GP practice, they need to be effectively triaged and put into the system appropriately, not benefiting the people that get through immediately at 8am, giving equitable access to primary care services to everyone that gets in touch no matter what time. That's a policy change. Now, what has that enabled? That has enabled companies like Clinic, who have got an AI triage solution that sits at the end of that phone line, to be purchased, to be demoed, to show their credentials. And all of a sudden, a policy change now leads to a competitive process amongst the best AI triage companies in order to come in. So what I'm saying is that to your question about like, are people not being heard? Is this like a shouts loudest thing i'm not convinced it is because actually an effective policy change at the right level that's sensible can enable those buyers those nhs sites in this those nhs sites in this example to start looking for the right innovation because all of a sudden the incentives line up because they can see financial benefit to meeting the gp contract the other financial benefits of meeting quaff points and all these other things that you will get as a result for those that don't know those are points that you can get for essentially like treating your cohort of patients in your area properly as a gp practice making sure that they've got all their checks for this and checks for that and tests for this and tests for that and all done and dusted you get points for this sort of thing and you can get paid as a practice for doing so so it starts to open people's eyes up to the to the potential for that as well and actually that's leveraged as a reason for doing it and all those things so I think, you know, in part, we we can help people shout loudly about things like written medicine, but ultimately, that's the technology frontier. Shouting about the technology and how good it is is the technology frontier. What I'm talking about there with a the policy change is, is changing the rules at the adoption frontier. So actually, that all of a sudden, it becomes incredibly valuable for them to go and do something about it and bring the technology in which then stimulates that side of the economy better that's that that's my view and that's just an example of it i think so like everything it goes back to the policymakers who aren't that close to the ground i think so but but and again like i've spent time in policy like i used to work at hee and you know i was on a fellowship where people were at nhs england and they were at nice and they were at cqc they were like lots of different places and other mm-hmm, arms led mm-hmm. bodies as well and so i spent time there and like yes you can say our oh, policy's boring policy's dull policy's this policy's that policy does have the potential to make extreme impact and the decisions that policymakers can make is an incredibly privileged position to be in and actually i've seen examples like i just talked about of this done 
well through the lens of AI triage getting in. I'm not saying there's no critics to the, to the new GP contract. Of course, there are for various reasons, but policy done well can stimulate real change. Policy done badly can do the opposite. And so it is, it is, it is, yeah, to your point, a powerful place to be. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, moving on to trends of a different kind, and maybe this is a reverse trend, I'm not really sure, but insider essentially is talking about telehealth services and how we're seeing a kind of rollback of where obviously in COVID where people had no other option um, but to be able to access healthcare from home um, and therefore over the phone, over a video call. Um, The popularity of that or the appetite for it seems to be rolling backwards now. And this is something I struggle to get my head around on a personal level, I think, because I think it's amazing. Uh, I use it all the time uh, and really see the benefits. But what? why do you think that this is? Why do you think that we're struggling to get the uptick, especially at a time where people are still calling at 8am to try and get in to see their doctors in real life, where we know that potentially this could open up resource capacity for appointments um and even the window for appointments where you can have people working you know offering appointments earlier in the morning later in the evening why do we think that this is happening i i think it's not only natural this happens i I think it's horses for courses i think this the technology of telemedicine perhaps it means that different strokes for different folks uh it means that everything has a use case and that use case can be specific and different per time so what i mean is i think telemedicine is great for some things i think it's great for repeat prescriptions i think it's great for quick views on things you obviously but it it has clear limitations like you you can't examine you can't get the same this that and the other so for relative i think for relatively healthy people with few comorbidities that have got a group of symptoms that means that they are quite likely to not need examining and this can all be done from history or mostly done from history uh i think you know that's the horse and and the course is telemedicine but for one with lots of comorbidities that needs a lot more, lot more done, and and this could mean that, and you need to connect the dots, so you might need a longer point. Like th- this, I think what this is is more just coming down into what what actually is the use case for telemedicine, and therefore anything that can benefit from in person is going to go back to there as the world opens up post COVID and has done. And so for me, like, it just feels like to, to the point earlier I was making about AI triage, right? Like telemedicine and those, te- those telemedicine appointments are just going to be one of the, one of the potential outcomes, one of the clinics that you can roll into with the potential to escalate from there, but trying to siphon that off. It's also because like at the end of the day, it's a doctor seeing a patient, you haven't actually saved any time there you've saved you know the patient having to travel in or you can think about that but like broadly like for at system level it's still a doctor seeing a patient you still got to pay the doctor to see the patient and so like at system level like you're not really saving much there i'll take your point about like yeah you can do appointments earlier maybe or later but those clinics exist in in person too and so 
I, I don't know. I think it's just a natural, like, hey, we used it for everything because we had to, but now we're going to sink back into what it's good for and what it's good at. And I don't know. I don't know if you want any other thoughts on it. I was just looking at the McKinsey uh, article or research that it was based on, and it references the McKinsey Physician Survey, which was done in 2021. So obviously that was still like right in the middle of the pandemic when, you know, the whole telemedicine uh, for doctors, for for the, the greater majority of doctors was relatively new. And also... I'm not entirely, I mean, I obviously haven't looked at this in a lot of detail. I don't know whether this is referencing physicians who are based predominantly in the US when we know there is a completely different system. So I guess there's a little bit of surprise on my part, especially where they reference that doctors are wanting to see patients in person. Because I I can only see from the work that we do with uh, private health providers who recruit a lot of GPs, and we know GPs want to work from home (laughs) they want to work remotely it's totally a lifestyle thing I I can't think of any GP that's been like I really want to be working more in person the roles that we have for GPs that are in person don't do as well so I, I don't know how recent or current that that conclusion is basically uh because tele from from what I see telemedicine and telehealth um uh, amongst pri- at least primary care physicians or primary care doctors, it's still very popular and increasingly so because it feeds into their ability to do their job, um, but also to do other things. Because <laughs> a lot of doctors are diversifying at the moment and developing a portfolio of things that they, they can do. Um, so, but that's not to say that you know if they they feel that someone needs to be seen, that they say you need to be seen and come into to this healthcare f- facility to do that. So yeah. I guess those are, those are the questions I have about where that, what that data is referencing and how recent and relevant is it to, to the now? Where, where do you think that ends, Abena, though? Because like, okay, so you're seeing, you're a great person to have on for this. So you're seeing lots of jobs for doctors, GPs, et cetera. And you're seeing that the ones where they're advertised at home working are going to be more popular, assumedly, if you extrapolate that, of course, they're going to want to be at home and very few are going to be are going to want to be in person but like obviously as a doctor yourself like do you when you when you play that out in your mind where does that leave primary care where does where does that go in the future is it like you're seen telemedicine style by a gp at home but then like if you i don't know if you've got headaches you might sensible to test their blood pressure like is there like a wireless bp cuff like in like an Amazon locker that they just have to go to to like test their wireless GP? Is there like other like hubs where there's like all of this kit and stuff that they can just do self-testing or they can go just through like a like a human car wash where they just get all of this stuff done to them and go at the other end and it's and then all of that gets beamed. Like is that like I, I don't know. I'm like I'm interested to see where you where where because you must have thought about that, right? With all of the GPs that are now working at home. Like, what does this actually mean for primary care? Yeah, no, that's really interesting because, um, and also the stuff you described, I think it would be very much like a kind of Uber investigations, like <laughs> that should be a new business. Yeah, like a drone that, just flies in through your so, window like, you with a BP see, cuff and it's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, with the instructions like drone, that pop up on, a, on an iPad. Go, like. Yeah, pop into the post office, even on your, your smartphone. Smartphones are becoming increasingly smart. So I wouldn't be surprised in the future if I could literally, 
you know, you, you I think there are apps where you can actually mon- monitor your O2 saturation. Yeah, like pulse ox stuff. Um, yeah. You'll probably have something that could do, do yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it will be a matter of you have a chat with your GP, you get your monitoring done depending on how accessible that is. And then maybe even in the same conversation, they'll say, well, this is, you know, like you were in a GP surgery. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's probably where it will go. It's probably where community pharmacy comes in as well, to be fair, because you could easily just nip to your pharmacist and get some of this stuff done there. And I know that's sort of part of the agenda, isn't it? Yeah, that's not always easy, though. Yeah, fair enough. Still a capacity thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, anything that requires people to kind of pop in somewhere, it it just actually, in today's age, is actually a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) Even if it is local. Like, I could even speak, like, like, from my own perspective, like, popping into my pharmacy even though it's like a mile away, isn't the easiest thing for me to do, especially during the day when you've got work, you've got this, you've got that. Um, and there's a queue and it closes for some reason at lunchtime because I'm in the country, finding somewhere to, do you know what I mean? And that takes up a lot of your day when I could literally just go on like, you know, the Lloyd's app and just get it delivered to my house. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, so I guess I like just, I, I think it's more about, you think about what happened with COVID and, you know, you could get a, you could either get your swabs in the post, or you could go to any of these your your local wherever anywhere where they're setting up a, a swabbing center, a testing center, which could literally be a pop up. Um, you'll go to wherever's convenient for you. So I think it, there could be something a model that's similar where you can access things like across the road from you potentially, depending on what the appetite is for other companies to uh, set up those kind of services, which we saw in COVID. There were a lot of companies that suddenly was like, right, we'll go into COVID testing. That had nothing to do with healthcare, but it was just an accessible thing to kind of very easily do. So if the government starts handing out contracts to companies to deliver that kind of thing, I think that that is the next step because people are saying, we do want, we do want to be seen. We do want to have um, assessments at home. We don't want to have to go and sit in a GP surgery or queue up for a mile or whatever. Um, we don't want to have to be calling up at eight in the morning every time we need to be seen. Um, yeah. And and maybe that will also, um, you know, we'll, we'll have more engagement for those harder to reach um, um, people, such as those from socially deprived areas, those that have the language barriers, um, especially if there's something in their locality that they can easily access without all the barriers that they face going to a traditional GP surgery mm. or needing to have tests done. It makes me it makes me wonder a little bit about the limitations of how we even think about primary care medicine, about like, we think of, we think of you and I, Ben, we'll think of history, examination, investigations, won't we? We'll think of it in that, in that order, in that way, doing those things and that kind of stuff. And like, I wonder, I just wonder if like, if you remove that as a limiting thing, like, everyone might have like a fire blanket or a, or a first aid kit or something in their house. Like what if everyone just had like these key devices in their house that when they're ill, these things will just do an appropriate amount of investigations along the broad systems to then figure out something. I don't know whether it is a finger prick thing from Thriver that's just in there at all times that, yeah, you'll have your GP appointment at, at home on your telemedicine device or whatever on your on your smartphone and then they just say yeah just nip into your kit and just give me like a finger prick test send that off and then oh just stick that wireless bp thing like in the in the nook of your arm and then like they get and then stick that on your finger to get a pull like i just wonder if like that's like a model obviously like there's issues around like 
digital poverty and stuff with that of like that's only going to be afforded to the rich isn't it but at least for now but i i don't know like i'm just just wonder i think we've seen that kind of thing in like films haven't we (laughs) we've seen that kind of thing done in films right and uh, i don't don't think that's a great idea it's like having a smart meter for health right so you've got the smart you know like smart meters that you have for um electricity and utilities just have it for health that kind of just sends data off to you know the the providers have something similar but for health where you can actually interact with it um as needed um yeah and like you have you know you have a box for the family Mm. where you can all do whatever you need to do and it, it it does maybe offer some of the basics that everyone should have the screening um and if anything's picked up then you get referred actually this does feed massively into um the, the movement at the minute about the point of care diagnostics because covid showed us what was what the potential was of developing tests that you can do at home to detect certain conditions. And actually that that I've noticed really raised the bar in terms of people's expectations and believing what was po- what's possible about genuinely building at home easy devices that can detect and measure certain things or diagnose certain things to a degree of sensitivity specificity etc. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of work going on about this. I know from medical device companies that are looking at just shrinking down like laboratory tests as much as possible and moving them into the community. So actually, whilst it started quite ridiculous as an idea, like maybe maybe this is maybe this is the start of a new model. I don't know, but roads do seem to be leading here. I think I think it needs to happen. I think it's a necessity for the future. Um, I think we look at. The, the first step is bringing it into the community outside of the traditional clinical environment. Uh, so that literally could be you go to your Sainsbury's or you go to your Asda or you go to your convenience store and you can do it there. And then the next step after that was like actually bring it into your home or even like religious places like mosques, churches, et cetera, et cetera. Just bring it directly to where, deliver it, where the where the people are, naturally are, cafes, do you know what I mean? So, so yeah, I think there's definitely a huge opportunity there. I think it will be a necessity for the future. Um, and it's what we will all be expecting in the future. If we really are going to capture, because, um, like, you know, more, more and more people are working from home. There's a huge population of people we never see because they are only at home right so actually how how do we best help manage and monitor the health of those people as well so yeah lots of opportunities there but i think i think it's a necessity for the future and as i said we've seen it in films so it's going to happen well out of that necessity will also be the necessity to ask that question and answer the question about data because I think that will also be one of the big barriers to something like this. And it's too big a question, I think, for us to answer and debate today. But who owns the data? Where is it going? All of those kinds of things, which I don't think are, is insurmountable. But, you know, use the example there of a smart meter. You know, obviously that goes to your energy company. But I don't know where else that data is used and how that could be used in my favor or not or how I could even be leveraging that for greater benefit but yeah interesting yeah that's opened another Pandora's box but also again I think it could 
potentially be a new opportunity for individuals to actually be empowered in having greater control over their data. It depends on, again, systems and how yes. it's designed yeah. and who, who it's designed really to benefit, right? So, yeah, always back to systems. Always back to systems. All right. Well, I think that is the perfect place to wrap up today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a slightly different format this week where we've kind of actually not picked out specific stories to talk about, but we've sort of swirled around them all and had a good debate and discussion about lots of these trends that are coming through. Yeah, we did. We didn't talk about Babylon, did we, though? We didn't talk about Babylon, but do you know, I'm sure there's going to be another story within the next seven days for us to talk about. So yeah. <laughs> uh, have no fear, Pigeon listeners. We haven't forgotten. There is much to be talked about there or just much to discuss there because it's a big one. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Babylon. I mean, I know that a lot of people are like on bated breath as in like, oh, now they're merging with Mind Maze. We might as well talk about it, the merging with Mind Maze. Um, uh, and yeah. It, yeah. It, I, I think it's interesting just to see that story unfold. I'm sure that will be made into a film as well. Yes, we've had, <laughs> we've had big debates about that this week. Um, but yeah, it, definitely an interesting partnership, collaboration there. Not an obvious one that I think many people will have seen coming and I think just from what I've seen and I did a bit of research just to understand what people were saying and it really even amongst Babylon employees um, really seems to be a story of two halves and I totally appreciate that what you see externally is not always reflected of what's going on internally but there are some people coming out you know really strongly about some negative experiences that they've had inside the organization and others of people who have started the organization even in the last couple of weeks singing its praises and seemingly optimistic for the future so I think it's a story that is going to continue to be told Uh, new chapters unfolding day by day week by week and we will be watching uh, with keen interest so fear not it's never far from our minds Abena Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Medic Footprints and if people are interested, where they can find you. Yeah, so we've had a really interesting year because we kind of stepped up. So um, we've just, well, this year we launched an incubator, which is a 12-month flexible program to help doctors move to industry faster. So when we work with companies, they talk about wanting industry-ready doctors. So that's what we're helping them to do essentially, um, helping them to uncover some of those opportunities that aren't advertised, which are actually most of the opportunities, right? Um, (laughs) And addressing the skills gap that they have. Um, That's on that side. And actually, we are now also in the process of launching a new project um, to enable companies to develop their own talent pools of doctors. And that will reduce the need for them to actually go out and advertise whenever they're ready. Um, so it's it's going to I mean I'll, I can talk about it it's it's basically a chip advisor meets glass door for well for doctors and companies so we really want to so basically I mean this all feeds into our vision and our mission of changing the landscape for what it means to be a doctor and the access to greater careers so at the moment it's like you train to be a doctor you're going to go into public sector healthcare either as a hospital doctor or as a GP so we want to change that as you're going to train as a doctor and actually the landscape is much more broad than that. Yes, you can do public sector, but also private sector clinical or non-clinical. So leadership roles 
or even beyond that consulting um even beyond that because at the end of the day like these are highly skilled workers and we really want to leverage the benefits of their minds uh, cross sector and i always see medicine is a great foundation for that but just practicing as a doctor is not the only thing that they would be good for that they are good for so this is very much it's a social impacts uh, mission uh really passionate about it and we're changing the world can you imagine what the world would be like <laughs> well we talked earlier about uh you know clinicians increasingly looking to portfolio careers and obviously we know that there are lots of doctors that are looking to leave medicine too so you know it sounds like you're doing some great work to really facilitate those transitions and make those transitions the right ones which is no mean feat because I think you know when people are looking for other opportunities it's really easy to jump in with two feet into what might not always be the right one so having the kind of mentorship and coaching from an organization like Medic Footprints to get people in the right places to it is all about, as you know, Jessica, I'm, I'm a great advocate for coaching and mentoring as a result of my own experience, but I've seen how transformative it is. And at the moment, we have a lot of doctors who are traumatized. They are traumatized from, you know, not just COVID but from their experience in healthcare and they feel undervalued. And the symptom of that is doctors striking, right? That is just a symptom as well as, and they're talking about pay, but it's not just about pay. Um, So this is really, again, changing the system, changing the way things are done. Everything goes back to systems. So, so yeah, so, so everything we do is, you know, it, it goes down to mindset, helping them to say, actually, what can be possible if you were able to, I say practice, but use your transferable skills to make the world a better place by solving some of the world's greatest issues, by solving some of the challenges we've talked about today in the healthcare system. Very difficult to do when you're on the coalface and you're in service delivery, but how can we help you to become a policymaker? How can we help you to be one of those founders of the health tech company selling into the NHS? Like that is what, that's what we, and that, that is going to be the change that we want to see. So that's going to get those smart meters for health into people's homes. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> nice. And if pe- if that sounds like something that people want to get involved in, how can they find out more and come and chat to you about it? Yeah. So the best way to get hold of me is actually uh, just send me a message on LinkedIn. That's Abena, A-B-E-Y-N-A-N for November A. There's only one of me, so very easy to find at Bubba's Jones. <laughs> That's the easiest way. Or you can check out medicfootprints.org um, to find out more about us. And if you're a company that wants to explore working with us and we, we can help you in some way, then it's medicfootprints.org forward slash partner with us. Lovely. And Abena's LinkedIn will be in our show notes. So you don't even need to go and search for it. You can just click and say hi. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful weekend.